If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is found in Luke 22, 1 through 6, and then 47 through 53. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Verse 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck a servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. You may be seated. Thanks be to God for his word, and thank you, Lord, for the Cerises who've led so well here. Uh, Joe and Becky would never say this, but I'll say it. When our church was going through a tough time, it was Joe and Becky who kept their hand on the rudder and led with great courage. So humanly speaking, we're all in a great debt to Joe and Becky and know you are loved and appreciated, my brother and sister. When we think of the word betrayal, uh, what comes to your mind? Maybe betrayal's a bit interpersonal. Certainly, if you go to a larger scope, we have words like treason and treachery. And I think when we think of being betrayed or the act of betrayal, that there's a particular pain involved because when we use that concept, we're talking about someone who is in our intimate circle, someone who is trusted with a kind of knowledge that a common association would not have. And in order for an act of betrayal to happen, that that very vulnerability would be used against us to do harm. That people talk about betrayal being so acutely painful again because the relationship seemingly to the person betrayed seemingly from the outside is going very smoothly. It's just, you know, uh, we're we're moving in the right direction. We're getting along. In fact, we might even say growing in intimacy. And then all of a sudden, it becomes apparent that, that the relationship has witnessed a betrayal. And today we come to maybe what is perhaps the most famous instance of betrayal in the history of the West, though the actual event took place in what we'd call the East, going back to the days of the Roman Empire, the Roman East, certainly in the West, the name Judas is synonymous with betrayal. And I hope what we do is that as we unpack this, that there'll be practical lessons from the events of this man 
for our church today. Now, if you remember where we're at in the story that we've been, even though it's cold outside, we've been marching towards Easter for several weeks. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the cultural elite has been coming at him with questions, uh, trying to get him to slip up. And verses 22, uh, 1 and 2, as was just read, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. What's happening is that Passover time is when Jews from all over the Mediterranean world were coming to Jerusalem. And a few, few pages, a few weeks, we're going to meet a Simon from Cyrene, that Cyrene's in North Africa, just one example of how Jewish people from what's all over the diaspora, that since the time of Pompeii, that they're moved all around the Mediterranean world, and at the Passover, this annual event, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they descend on Jerusalem uh, to pay homage to the Lord at the temple, and so it meant a gr great increase in population and very hard to do things pr uh, privately. So the leaders, those calling the shot, they've got a problem, they've got a dilemma. They see Jesus as a threat, that he's a problem, he's got to go. Whatever it takes, we've got to get rid of Jesus. But their problem is that they're bound by the amounts of people and because there's a significant subset that's actually sympathetic to Jesus. And you can picture it, say, there's a bit of a chess match going on, you know, and they're, they're, they're locking horns, and what you need is the kind of crucial move to, to unlock which way it's going to go. Uh, to use a sports metaphor, it's like, is there going to be a, a, you know, a late-game turnover that's going to spill it in one direction? And we get that in the form of this man, Judas Iscariot, the traitor, that Judas decides to betray Jesus. And in so doing, the course is set that after today, Good Friday seems to be an inevitability, though it was, of course, all along. It is certainly an inevitability because Judas tips the scales in betraying the Lord of glory. Now, when it comes to Judas, I find it his, his, uh, the way that he lands, his, we could call it his reception history, is very interesting. That if you've grown up in a church that you, uh, and this, this view is the one that, you know, largely I, I hold to, but Judas is um, at, at a kind of different level of evil. That while we all know, you know, we read Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I got problems and you got problems, but at least we're not like Judas. Uh, there's a special dimension, you know, we, we put in there, we've got Stalin and Hitler and, and Judas, they're in their own bucket. Uh, how could you, Judas? And this version, uh, I think, through the medieval times, is, is best depicted, if I can take you back to high school English for a moment, in, in Dante's Inferno. If you remember in the Divine Comedy, the Inferno, it's not based on the Bible, but there are different layers of hell. You've probably seen artistic depictions of this. And as you descend hell, the worse the people are. So on, on the first level of hell, this is not a biblical idea, but like the first level of hell is not that bad. You know, people are just like, the, you know, the bad people kind of joking, joking around. It's not like that, but that's Dante. But as you go down to the ninth, the ninth level, down in the bottom where Satan is, uh, for Dante, Satan has three mouths. Again, not in the Bible, but in one of Satan's mouths is Judas Iscariot. Who's the worst possible person that we could put in the mouth of Satan down at the very bottom of hell? Well, that, that spot is reserved for Judas. In fact, the region of Dante's hell is named after this Judas. That Judas, again, would be seen as somebody who's yeah, worse than bad. We got problem, but he's way worse, and he's kind of dismissed as, as a, a real outlier. 
Now, the second version of Judas is more interesting, I think equally problematic, that he's, like a lot of things, they've tried to rehabilitate Judas. Uh, this is the version of, well, you know, poor Judas. Uh, wrong place, wrong time. That we all know the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. I trust that we know that. It wasn't as at the first Easter where God's looking down. He's like, well, I, gosh, I, I don't know what to do with this. This is getting a bit out of hand. Uh, oh, gosh, are they going to send my son to the cross? No, we, we know that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world, that God knew that we'd shake our fist at him, that we'd turn our backs on him, that we'd need to be redeemed, that he'd send his son into the world to to die the death that we deserve, that he would be raised from the dead. That's from the foundation of the world. So how it comes to pass through Judas. Is it poor Judas? You can think of that line in, in Luke twenty-two twenty-two for the coming up next week. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God's calling the shots. Jesus is no victim here. It's exactly as planned. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, Judas is this key instrument that drives this narrative forward. Now, where does this come from? I think you can trace it all the way back to, to ancient times in what we call the Gnostic literature, where Jesus or Judas is presented as a kind of hero because he's liberating Jesus from his physical body. This is a very Platonic idea. Uh, we know that our bodies are a problem, so say the Platonists. Therefore, Judas, by betraying Jesus, is actually doing him a favor and comes right into the popular realm in a famous book called The Last Temptation of Christ, since it was made a film in the 80s. And if you saw that film or you read that book, what you know is it actually makes Judas into a hero, that it's only Judas among the 12 who really understands Jesus. And I hope what we're able to do today is to kind of steer between these poles of our perception of Judas. On the one hand, he's not in this kind of different category in such a way where we don't even pay attention to him because he's that evil. And on the other hand, we don't want to say, well, Judas was just a poor guy in the wrong place. What Judas did was very serious, that he turned his back on Jesus. He of all people to, 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 to do this to the Lord of glory, what a serious and consequential error. And consequently, Judas is eternally condemned for his decision to do this over the course of this short period of time. On the other hand, I want to see, and this is the part that's a little bit more probing, that I think there are inclinations in Judas that might be all too relevant in my own crooked heart. That the things that drove Judas to turn his back on Jesus, actually those sentiments might be alive and well in me? And am I willing to go there this morning and allow them to be exposed before the Lord and transformed into something positive for the kingdom? So I think there are four lessons from Judas that we can look at here and in other places and, and, and hopefully a way forward for our church. So first notice that Jesus, Judas misunderstands Jesus' mission. He doesn't quite understand what he's signed up for, so to speak. And one way into this, and there's a number of subtle clues given in the gospel text, one is what we would call the disambiguator on his name. So it's a fancy word for saying that in the first century Jewish world, the more common male name you had, that you needed another kind of qualifier to tell which one of those individuals you were. So a great example, most common Hebrew male name at the time of Jesus is Simon. 
There are lots of Simons in the New Testament, but what you'll notice, every time there's a Simon, he's given a disambiguator. There's a Simon the Zealot. There's Simon Peter. There's Simon Magus. That second word is to tell everybody which Simon we're talking about. Judas is a common male Hebrew name at the time of Jesus. That's why there are many Judases in the New Testament, several of them, I should say. And he's qualified by this word, Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. What does that mean? Scholarship's a bit divided. On the one hand, some think that this is denoting the place that he came from called Keraoth. Judas is from a town called Keraoth, which in itself could be very interesting because that would make him the only one that we know for sure is non-Galilean. Is uh, Judas an outsider in that sense? The other interpretation is a lot more provocative that the name Iscariot, the root of that, the, in English, S-C-A-R, is relu- uh, related to a group mentioned by Josephus called the Daggermen. That Josephus, in his contemporary account, is dividing up the different groups of Jews and the philosophies, he would call them, that they follow. And one of them is the Zealots, who are called the Daggermen. And what that means is they were going around, their view was, we've got to get the Romans out. We've got to rise up militarily. We've got to kick out the bad guy. And in this group, they anticipated the Messiah because it was promised in their Bible. They were anticipating a militaristic Christ. That when their Christ came, that their problems territorially would be over in the context of the first century, that the Romans would be put out, that things would be made right on Zion, that the Jews would be recognized for the chosen people that they are, And that's how they would go forward with the rightful ruler, the king. Now, this uh, stream of Judaism runs right through. That if you're fortunate to have a thoughtful Jewish friend and you're able to talk to them openly about this, they'll say, do you believe in a Messiah? They say, absolutely, I believe in the Messiah. It's promised in my Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. Well, what's your Messiah going to do? Well, my Messiah is going to consolidate the land of Israel. He's going to get the Muslims off Mount Moriah. That we're going to reestablish the, 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 you know, the temple and worshiping God in Zion. In other words, they expect a kind of temporal, territorial figure to come in and push out all the people that don't believe in the one true God. To this day, they're looking for a kind of fighting Messiah. So could that be why Judas sees this isn't going so well? I signed up to kick these guys out, and all of a sudden what I've gotten is a a preacher who's talking about changing hearts and a kingdom of heaven. Added to this, there's another little detail, this primarily from Matthew's gospel, that if you remember, there's a couple of times, I guess, that this happens to Jesus, but he's at a, you know, a posh party, and a woman of ill repute comes up, and she's got a flask of expensive ointment, uh, something that would have been key for her trade, and she decides to spill this expensive ointment all over to honor Jesus by putting it on his feet. And we're told both in John and Matthew's account that the disciples ask, why are you letting her waste this expensive ointment? It could fund our mission for months. In John's gospel, we're told specifically that it's Judas who takes issue with that. In other words, the woman brings this expensive nard, dumps it on Jesus' feet in an act of honor, 
And Judas says something like, well, stop her from doing this because actually if she wants to, let, let, her, let her give it to us so that we might sell it, so that we might drive the, the real mission forward. And why that's interesting is because both Gospels, the next thing they record is that Judas makes the turn. It's at that moment that it flips. He says, now I'm going to turn on Jesus. And he seeks out the cultural elite to make this happen. So what I think this looks like, really, friends, is disappointed ambition. This is uh, disillusionment in the faith. And I must ask, in our American setting, how many cultural Christians have this kind of disillusioned understanding of the mission? Hey, come to church, you know? Do some pleasantries with other Christians, you know? Do lip service to Jesus, and you know what might happen? You know, you're going to become rich. All your problems will go away. You won't have a bad health diagnosis. Your curve's going to be up and to the right. And you get here, and you say, gosh, this following Jesus is hard. This being a real disciple and serving other people and loving other people and sharing the gospel, this isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for wealth and health. And we become disappointed in our ambitions of the mission. And I think that's very dangerous, and I think that's very possible as to what happened to Judas, that he got going, he said, this is not what I wanted, I anticipated something else, I anticipated a bit more earthly victory, a bit more notoriety, and instead what I get is this Jesus talking about repentance. So Judas, I think, misunderstands Jesus' core mission. May we be those who understand the core mission, which of course is to make disciples that God has called us into an assembly so that we might share our faith, replicate our faith, encourage depth in the faith so that in the end God would consolidate his kingdom. What's the kingdom? What's the mission? Make disciples, not earthly, not territorial, not glamorous. Judas misunderstands this big consequence. Secondly, flows right out of the first, Judas misunderstands true discipleship, really following Jesus. Now, I'll share something that is very scary. If you remember all the way back, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it in Luke 9. But think of the implications of Luke 9 and verse 1 for what we're talking about. And he called, Jesus called the twelve together. Judas is there. And he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I think what this means is that Judas was given a kind of endowment by virtue of being one of the twelve. One of the twelve apostles to start the church, one of the select few, was given this special endowment to do amazing things that are confined just to his office as an apostle that he could cure people, that he healed people, that he witnessed miracles, he performed miracles, and, dare I say, Judas preached. He preached the kingdom of God. And all this was a show. That Judas is a guy who went through all the motions, but his heart was never really in the right place. Have you met people that they'll come up to you if you're a Christ follower and they'll say, if, if I saw a miracle, you know, I mean, if God really, if I, you know, the lightning bolt just kind of came down on Providence Church right as Pastor Shaw speaking, well, then I'd, then I'd get on the Jesus boat. And I want to say it does not work that way. 
It does not work that way. There are loads of people who see amazing things, who uh, witness the water cycle, who live in this world, who have sophisticated bodies, who see babies born. They see miracles all the time, and yet, no. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. So Judas is a test case, the scary reality that it's possible to go through all the religious motions, fool every single person, even the 11 guys that you've spent three years with, you can fool them. And it's not really following Jesus. Can you think of the level of duplicity as Jesus would say at the Lord's Supper, same 12 there, the way this is going to go down is that one of the 12 of you is going to betray me. And they start looking around. Did we just hear him right? How could it be? How could any of us do that to our master? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? And Judas, what a moment. Jesus, is it I? To Jesus' response, you have said so. Can you imagine the level of nerve to say that to Jesus. And I must say, there, the second reading that we had from later in the chapter, if we were to capture this moment, as has been captured many times, for example, Caravaggio's painting of this betrayal that is now in Dublin, but it is, of course, the kiss. The kiss. And why the reclining at the table, is it I, Rabbi, and the action of the kiss is because this is then the height of where we get the language of betrayal. To be in Jesus' inner circle, to be reclined at the table with him, and of course, why the kiss? The kiss was the signal as to which guy he was. Think about it. You've got a big mob of folks. They're coming out to the Garden of Gethsemane with lanterns, you know. It's hard to tell facial features. They don't know who Jesus is very well. Judas knew where he would be, at what time, and of course, the kiss because he could get close. Think about it. We don't kiss to greet, but if somebody came in close to you and you didn't know him, you'd say, what are you, you know, why are you coming so close? Whereas those you know well, you know, could come in, give you a hug, show you a sign of affection. Why? Because you know them. You've trusted them. You've allowed them in at a level of intimacy. So Judas is one who went through all the motions. He had all the access and he eventually would use that access to commit the act of betrayal, the signal, this is your guy. Friends, there might not be more scary words, more sobering words in the New Testament than Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus is speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying? It's possible to be like Judas to go through all the motions and to never really be converted. And I bring all this up to ask us in a, I hope, a helpful way not to make every Christ follower panic that if you're in the faith, we're told to test that we're into faith, in the faith, not to, you know, just say the words and not think about it, but to say, no, I'm really a Christ follower. I'm not just going through the motions. But perhaps you're here today, and those words and this activity of Ju Judas, as you put yourself there, say, am I like one who just, I'm just doing the stuff, but I've never given my heart over to Jesus. I've never really been converted. That song we sometimes sing here has been sung for many years in the American church. 
I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Sadly, we all know examples of many who have turned back. This mission isn't what I thought. I'm not that into this Jesus stuff. All these people at Providence are a bunch of weirdos. I'm out of here. What give my heart to Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, loving Jesus? No thanks. I'm out. And to see the great consequences of that action today and to make the church very sober-minded about what it means to be really devoted to Jesus. Now, verse, 20, verse 3 of chapter 22 adds another layer to this. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. This, I think, some is the starting, one of the starting points of seeing Judas as a victim, but how can we better understand this? To see Judas has already turned away from Jesus. He's made up his mind, so here's the avenue to follow Jesus, and he says, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm turning away. I'm going to betray Jesus. And in so doing, he opens himself up to dark and demonic influences. If you're a real Christ follower, you really surrender to Christ, you've really, the action in our catechism of, of transferred your sin to the cross and accepted his righteousness as a gift, then we know that we cannot be possessed by demons. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That if you're a real Christian, you cannot be possessed by the enemy. But we can be pushed around by him. We can be enticed and influenced by him. Lots of verses like this. So, for example, Ephesians 4, 27, Paul writes to the church, make sure you don't give the devil an opportunity in your life. Or James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee. In other words, you're a Christ follower. You can't be possessed by Satan or demons, but you can certainly take your eyes off Jesus and open yourself up to all kinds of, well, hellish things. But of course, if you're not a Christian, both you can be possessed by darkness and demons and certainly pushed around to do Satan's bidding. And I submit to you what's happened here is that Judas, having the opportunity and in fact the calling to sincerely follow Jesus, said, I'm turning away from Jesus. I, I've turned my back on it and in so doing has opened himself up as an instrument to satanic influence and very dark dark things. Just this week, give you an example to bring this down. Um, I was meeting with a man for breakfast about my age. He's talking about uh, a relative. I don't want to get too specific as someone attached to our congregation, but this man, uh, he had four children. The children were young, and he decided that, uh, you know, he had had enough that he was going to go have an affair, that he would abandon his family, and that's the way it was going to be, and that's what he did. And the man I'm having breakfast with, this is now, what, 25, 20, 25 years later, he just put his head down and said, I wish, names the guy, would see the great consequence of his actions. He's destroyed his former wife's well-being, the confidence in unconditional love. He has done great damage to his children, to their faith, to their well-being, and the, cons the ripple effect of that decision has had so many consequences in our family that are still happening. Now, I would submit to you that that man did exactly what he wanted to do. He is doing exactly what he wants to do. He also has opened himself up to being used as a great instrument 
of Satan. And that's what I see Jesus. So you say, I'm not, I'm not with Jesus anymore. I'm doing my own thing. That turned to say, now I'm available for a different kind of a master. You know, you can't ride two horses at once, right? You're with Jesus or you say, I'm not with Jesus and you open yourself up. And that's what Judas did. And by the way, last note on this, Satan's involvement, what should that at the very least tell us? That these events with Jesus are of cosmic significance. Oh, you know, Galilean revolutionary crucified in Judea 2,000 years ago, marginal footnote in, in the history books, no. That Satan's involvement shows that this has cosmic significance, that every person is called to turn unto Jesus, to be genuinely converted, to receive the gift that we've been given on the cross and to entrust ourselves to him. So Judas, Judas misunderstands the mission. Judas misunderstands true discipleship. Now the last two in short order, Judas misunderstands real satisfaction. Again, I think the, what we commonly associate with Judas, which is true, is that he had a problem with money. The John's gospel tells us that Judas was given control of the purse. That's a lot of responsibility. You know, in any organization, who you trust with the money is a sign of trust. But John adds a little detail. He says, you know, Judas was helping himself. He was taking some of the coins off the top and pocketing them for what purpose, we don't know. But that's his vulnerability. And I think it's very interesting that Satan enters into Judas. And it is Judas, friends. It is Judas who proposes the payment. It is not the scribes. They wouldn't know that Judas was thinking about tipping, right? They didn't think he was thinking about treachery and treason. It is Judas that initiates the action. Could he have done it for free and put the cultural elite in his debt? I suppose so. But he says, no, how about 30 pieces of silver? And my point here, I think, pastorally is this, that Satan is not a great innovator. That's a, that's a saying, right? He doesn't, his craft, his power isn't in thinking up new things, but it's dealing on the subtleties of our vulnerabilities. That the same things that dogged me as a young man now dog me as a middle-aged man. Or as the staff would tell you, I'm not 39, I'm 93. So it dogs me as an old man. That wherever your weakness is, wherever your guilt is, wherever it is I'm most inclined to go off the rails, that's where Satan will tempt you. We take our eyes off Jesus for a moment, say, I'm not into that, I'm doing my own thing, and Satan sticks it right where he knows I'm most vulnerable. And so Judas here is a man who teaches us the lesson, money is a very good thing, but it's a very bad God. And he's tempted along the lines where he is most susceptible, and the consequences are real. Judas understands real satisfaction, not in material things, betraying the Lord of glory for a few months' payment. In our context, tens of thousands of dollars, I don't know, something like that, but betraying Jesus, the eternal king. Lastly and crucially, I know the hour is late, but we end on the grace of our Savior and a very important thing for everyone who's hearing this today. Judas misunderstands repentance. Matthew's gospel in particular tells us that as soon as Judas does this, he regrets it that he's filled with remorse and guilt. He's betrayed the most perfect, the only perfect human who ever lived. And he comes to, this is very telling, 
he comes back to the religious and cultural elites, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he basically says, um, fellas, can we reverse course here? What I did wasn't right, and I'm feeling really bad. This is Matthew 27, 3 and 5. And what they tell him, I think, is, is so true and so sad. It's this. Judas, that's your problem now. There is no solutions for you here. The deed is done. You will not find forgiveness. You will not find restoration. Go take your guilt. Figure it out. Suck it up, buttercup, that kind of thing. What did Judas said there is one he could go to who's in the story here, who would forgive him, who would forgive him for even this level of treachery. Is it one of the other disciples, more of the, the institution of the town? Who could he have gone? Had Judas went to Jesus and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I betrayed you. Jesus says, well, I go to the cross for people like you, Judas. And I wish this is a message that everyone needs to hear because we all have guilt in this world. We're weighed down by things that we've done, the things that we've said. We've got all kinds of guilt, and we keep coming back to the human institution to say, I feel this guilt. Can anyone offload it? And the world says, that's your problem. Figure it out. And we end up like Judas, in despair, in separation, and in his case, suicide. No wonder because he was taking his guilt to the wrong place. And to every Christian in the room, I hope we see once again the grace of our Lord who would sit at the table with Judas, who would have stood there with open arms had he repented, but instead Judas thinks it's just another person who's going to get him by with some good advice or, you know, going back over the history. No, that it's Jesus who takes the weight of our sin. So friends, in this story of Judas, may we see our own frailty, May we see the consequences of taking our eyes off Jesus. May we be sober-minded about the real mission of making disciples, sober-minded about true discipleship, about really following Jesus, about really giving our lives over to him, about understanding that real satisfaction is not met in material, but in a life of abiding in Christ. And by all means, may we see the great glories of true repentance, the great accomplishment of Jesus on the cross, and in a generation that is bogged down by depression and guilt and suicidal thoughts because they're doing as Judas did and taking their guilt to the wrong place, may we show them there really, really is one who God sent to take that. And you can know him, and you can offload him, offload that to him, and you can live for him. And that's why it's great to be a Christian. Father, thank you very much for including this otherwise embarrassing story in the Gospels, all four, that an intimate relation of Jesus would betray him. How embarrassing. But Lord, the lessons that would come to the church about what it really means to follow you. And quite frankly, seeing Judas, yes, as somebody who, who had major, major consequences for his, his choices. But through his narrative to see that we must keep our eyes on you, test all of our thoughts to always examine that we're in the faith, and Lord, to bear witness to the fact that no, I try to offload the embarrassing things in my life onto other places and it just doesn't work. But there is Jesus and he takes it for us and that he can raise it up to new life. And that's why people are still Christians and becoming Christians. You can be one too. So we commit this to you. Help it to soak in for Christ's sake. Amen.